Welcome back to this little show we call the Bullshit Filter. Um, oh, yeah. I, I think this might be our last one. I, I, I quite frankly, yeah, well, I always nothing, say that. There's nothing happening in the world. I know. So. There's nothing to talk about. <laughs> this is Bullshit Filter 116 for those right. that are paying attention. Um, uh, Ray's holding up his Bullshit Filter coffee mug for uh, my pleasure. Um, yes. So, look, there's a lot of things that we could talk about uh, this week, but the thing that we're going to talk about um, is the situation in Sudan. Yeah. Uh, why? Because I don't know a lot about it, and I wanted to justify to learn. a couple of hours yeah. more, a couple of days more likely, uh, drilling into Sudan. What's going on in Sudan, Deep. and as is our want, eh, the history behind what's going on in Sudan? Right. Because you know the thing that when you when you listen to the mainstream media tell you these stories, obviously they're going to give you sound bites. They're going to give you yeah, the thirty-second uh, version of it, and they, they leave a lot out, uh, a lot of pertinent right. stuff out, because um, yeah. uh, you know, like uh, uh, I guess my wife, uh, their attention span when it comes to these things is very short. Um, right. we, we were standing in the kitchen yeah. last night, and I, she said, "What have you been working?" And I said, "A sedan," and uh, she goes, "Oh yeah, what's going on there?" And I was in about twenty seconds into explaining the situation, and her eyes rolled up into the back of her head, quite literally, and yeah. she started to yeah. like fall over. I had to catch her, gently lay her down. Right. She was in a coma. Um, you know, then you to start talking about the Kardashians, mm. and she comes back. No, no. but can, <laughs> no, just joking. Can I ask a serious question based on that? Um, the the attention span of the average news viewer versus what you see on the news, just like you said, do you think that's a little bit of the chicken and the egg? I mean, have we been conditioned over the years to expect a 30 second soundbite that had better be maybe entertaining as well, or we're going to suddenly just tune out or move on to something else? I mean, not just news, but I guess maybe technology and apps in general. Do you think that we're that our ability to focus is being reduced by the consuming of all of these apps and news news feeds? I think that's true. Always to wondered a, about that. Yeah, I think that's true to a point, uh -huh. but I think. You know, generally people are so busy just getting through their lives that they really aren't interested in things that don't affect them directly. Yeah. And people, you know, I think we go, Africa, what, who? I don't care. What's it got yeah. to do with me? How is it affecting me? Yeah. As a, you know, yeah. does it affect my job? You know, I've got chat GPT uh, breathing down. But speaking of which, just to change the subject, I know right. I do a whole other podcast sure. about this. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, interesting, this week alone, uh, Hollywood right. writers strike, and one of their demands is that AI will not be used in writing scripts in Hollywood. Um, they, I think this will Good go down point. in history as the first uh, industrial action to try and fight against artificial intelligence taking somebody's jobs. I don't think right. they're going to succeed. I mean, they may negotiate yeah. uh, some sort of a short-term agreement because AI mm -hmm. is not ready to replace them yet. But um, you know, they're they're just delaying the inevitable. Time. You know, yeah, it is uh, inevitable, absolutely. And as my son Taylor said when we were talking about this the other day, eh, maybe they shouldn't write such shitty scripts. You know, um, <laughs> there's an idea. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of great stuff that comes out of streaming media and Hollywood. You know, but I say a lot. 
I say 1% of it's really good. The other 99% actually yeah. AI could write because it's that shitty. Um, right. But anyway, and that's the who approved this? Yeah. Sorry, the other thing ahead. that's yeah. happened this week is Chegg, a company based out of the US uh, that mm-hmm. provides education services. They provide like um, resources for students, so like give me an essay on subject X, give me an overview of this book so I can write an right. assignment on it. They did, a, I think, an earnings call or something where they said um, their usership numbers had really dropped off and they thought it was all because of people using chat GPT instead. And uh, right. their share price crashed by, I don't know, 50% or something overnight. So they might be Ooh. the first business to go under as right. a result of AI. And and AI has you know, only been around in public. Chat GPT came out at the beginning of December last year. So we're talking five months Already it's and causing it's already. an industrial action and uh, a business perhaps yeah. failing. Um, so, yeah. yeah, this is just the beginning of what's going to be a really interesting few yeah. years. You know. and, and it's just going to get faster. The evolution or whatever the proper term is, it's just going to get faster and faster. Mm. And pretty soon, yeah, you can't have a business. Like, let's meet about this tomorrow. No, it's already happened. So that's just the nature of progress and technology. And it's not going mm. anywhere anytime soon. First, they came for the screenwriters in Hollywood, but I did not care because I was not a screenwriter in Hollywood. <laughs> then they came for the podcasters, and I cried like the little girl I am. Yeah, and was living anyway. on food stamps. Anyway, <laughs> in the meantime, yes. Uh, yes, let's talk about Sudan. What's going on in Sudan? Yeah. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna see it in your headlines, and you're yeah. gonna get the 15 second, you know, sound bite, but. It's a really, I think, an interesting story, and and the more you drill down into it, there's a there's a lot to be learned from this, and a lot of stuff that you won't probably get told by the mainstream media for a variety of reasons. Yeah, but the, the high level is, as people probably have gathered, there are two generals over there: a general Abdel Fattah Al Burhan, and General mm-hmm. Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, uh, better known right. as Hamedi. Um, They they were sort of partners and now they've sort of, they're fighting each other um, as happens a bit like you and I, you know, we started off as friends (laughs) and partners and now we just (laughs) bitch at each other. It got ugly. Yeah. Now we're duking it out to see who wins the uh, (laughs) podcast (laughs) uh, kingdom, kingdom of podcasts. Not that it's going to be worth much after uh, AI gets done with it, but no. still, it's yeah. it's the it's the principle. It wasn't of worth the much I before think. AI, but it was <laughs> even less after AI. And we've we've shined up this turd to a sparkle, but yeah, it's yeah. not worth much. So hey, go ahead. Hey, 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 you want to buy this? Hey, you want to buy this nice yeah, little watch, podcast yeah. empire? Hey, yeah. hey, look at this. Um, I'm selling my microphone, but it won't need it. Yeah. Now, Burhan is Sudan's top general, president of the ruling military government, the junta that um, took control a couple of years ago. Hamedi runs this basic uh, militia called the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, um, Mm -hmm. also known as the Janjaweed, which I like to Toke on from time to time, the Janjaweed, but uh, I didn't know you could be used to take over a country. Um, Do you have enough of it? Well, yeah, I, I thought if Janjaweed took over a country, it would be like uh, everyone, hey, like- everybody, just, <laughs> just uh, sit down and relax, watch The wow. Simpsons, you know. it's yeah. You got any Doritos? You got Graham Jones <laughs> we, in there. We take uh, off the yeah. country by not doing anything. 
Um, <laughs> exactly. What the Hollywood yeah. writers are doing on strike. They're striking um, with ganja yeah. weed, I'm sure. Or is it ganja weed? Hot tubs it's a difference. Bobbing for quaaludes right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> so these two leaders uh, jointly carried out a coup in 2021. Burhan carried out probably a more important one too in 2019. That was right. the one that removed President Omar al-Bashir, who right. had been in power for 30 years in Sudan. Yes. Uh, yeah. He's he's currently in jail. Um, nearly there was a huge jailbreak this week uh, in the jail that right. he's in. A lot of his um, former senior leadership team escaped in the jailbreak. Yeah. He didn't. Yes. The military uh, moved him to another place. But um, right. he'd been in power for 30 years, so we'll talk about that. But anyway, these two guys now, Burhan and Hamedi, mm-hmm. don't trust each other, a bit like us. Um and whenever I hear stories like this, you know, my bullshit um, radar goes off. Um, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I wonder what we're not being told about this story. Mm-hmm. And before you call me a conspiracy theorist, here's what I know to be true. Um, Sudan mm-hmm. is an oil-rich country. Um, mm-hmm. It was even oil-richer 12 years ago before South Sudan, with the support of the Obama administration, uh, broke away, got its independence, and took 75% of the oil reserves that Mm. Sudan, when it was, uh, you know, a a single unified country, had access to. But it still has oil, uh, and it has a lot of other resources as well. uh, And it's strategically- port. Yeah, yeah, it's strategically yeah, yeah, very important, which we'll get into. It's not just about right. oil, but it does have oil. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And whenever you see a country um, th- that is strategically important, ha- is rich in resources, and you have two sides fighting, um, mm-hmm. y- y- you know that they're not doing this alone. They- they're-, they're going out to various foreign interests and yes. saying, hey, listen, yes. help me out here. I need to beat the other guy, and they're they're going to be playing off um, their potential foreign power alliance partners um, mm-hmm. to promise them the most. Well, if you help me win, we know this from history, right? right? We we don't exactly yes. know what's going on with Sudan right now, but um, we we know that this happens. If you read history, you know that whenever these situations go down in a country that's important, if it's a country that's got fucking nothing and in the middle of nowhere and no one cares, different situation. Exactly. But when it's a strategically exactly. important country, everyone's yeah. everyone wants their guy to win. And we'll get into that in a second. So right. um, do, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about why Sudan is strategically important. But before I do that, do you want to jump in and add your 20 cents, my friend? Well, just that as we're going to find, and I'm just going to touch on this, uh, as the podcasters say, or as AI taught me to say, tease it. Um, actually, the, these two leaders have been talking to people outside of their own country for the last two years, just like you said, lining up support, because I personally think that neither one of them ever had any uh, desire to to give up power. Who's the only person that we've ever known to give up power? And that was Sola. As far as that, maybe you can come up with another name, but people generally do not give up power. And like you George said, Washington. Very, uh, 
George Washington a good point because he wanted Mount Vernon more than uh, he wanted the presidency. But besides, by the time he went and lived with his gay with boyfriend him, as well, he wanted out. He wanted <laughs> out. No, but people, but but it's not. It goes against human nature to give up power and security and all that kind of stuff. And I think this has been a long time coming. And you're right. We might not know for years some of the bigger players, some of the main players, but hopefully in time it will come out. But right now, the most important thing is that these people are suffering from another another civil war because two warlords want to be the top dog. Yeah. So. Um- Strategically, I'll explain why Sudan is important. So for people who don't have a map in front of them and and like Mm -hmm. most Westerners probably don't know where Sudan is apart from somewhere in Africa, if you think about the uh, east coast of Africa, right, you've got Egypt. Everyone knows where Egypt is. But it's right. sort of you, you come out of the Middle East, the first country you hit when you go through the Suez Canal there is Egypt. Um, mm-hmm. Right below Egypt is Sudan. Um to the yeah. to the uh, west of Egypt, you have Libya, and it borders the sort of northwestern corner of Sudan as well. Um, mm-hmm. And then, sort of to the east of Sudan, you've got the Red Sea. Uh, it, right. it sits on the Red Sea, around about equal um, latitude to Mecca and Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. And then below mm-hmm. it, you've got um, Eritrea and Ethiopia, and it's also bordered right. on the west by Chad, the Central African Republic. So it's very close to Egypt, Libya, the Red Sea, Saudi Arabia, not far from Israel, Ethiopia, mm-hmm. um, and as I said, a lot of oil. Uh, if, if you look at it on a topographical map, you'll see that very deserty Sudan. Um, if you go yeah. down to South Sudan, a um, lot of lot of greenery there. That's where the oil is down South Sudan. Most of the oil, a very different right. sort of landscape. Um, but it's also where Sudan is where the White Nile and the Blue Nile rivers merge to form the main Nile River. Now I didn't know this, but that's mm, where the no. Nile starts, and then it flows northwards through Egypt, right. uh, comes out, you know, sort of at the mouth and and around sort of Cairo. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the, the, so the Nile flows northward. So the water, all of the water that Egypt has, uh, and Ethiopia as well, because it could flow south, but all the water that mm-hmm. um, Egypt has comes from Sudan. Um, so right. the Nile is obviously very important to all of these countries, and it yes. comes out of Sudan. So that's one reason why it's important. More than sixty percent of the Nile River basin is in Sudan. Um, mm-hmm. Then there's this dam called the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, um, name. designed by Leonardo da Vinci, um, <laughs> apparently. Uh, Ethiopia is trying to use that to double their electricity generation, but mm-hmm. it's causing a lot of geopolitical issues. Um, yes, because they keep filling the dam without everyone agreeing to it. Anyway, a lot of interests yeah. involved in the Nile. Um, oh yes, I said that it sits on the Red Sea, Sudan. This is which is obviously very, very important. About ten percent of global trade goes through the Red Sea. Obviously, the Suez Canal is at the top there, connects Asian and European markets. We know the Suez Canal has right. been very, very um, 
strategically important, difficult. The British fought over it in the 50s and the French. And, you know, everyone's, yeah. you know, very keen to make sure that it stays open, that that yes. sea traffic going through it into the Red Sea and out to the rest of the world isn't impacted. And so whoever borders that, which is why mm-hmm. Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Israel are really important to global you know, yes. Western interests is because of that. It's one of the reasons anyway. Um, and right. then Sudan has immense mineral resources. Um, you know, it's Africa's third largest producer of gold, still has wow. major oil reserves, and produces over 80% of the world's gum Arabic, which uh, is a very important component in uh, food additives, in paints, in cosmetics. So strategically important for all of those reasons. Now, um, because of its oil and because of its proximity to the Red Sea, uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have been heavily involved, particularly since the removal of Bashir in 2019, to try and Mm -hmm. stabilise the region. But um, other countries are deeply involved there as well and have been for a long time. China and yes. Russia in particular deeply involved there. Uh, after the invasion of Ukraine, uh, Sudan has been working with Moscow to provide them with gold, access to their gold. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of a little bit murky here because, you know, whenever you talk about this area or Russia, you know, there's a lot of Western propaganda that that you can't be sure what's verified and what's not. But the suggestion is that um, Russia's been taking a lot of gold out of Sudan to help finance their war. Um, yeah, hard to hard to back that up, but it, you know we, we, there are just reports, rumors, those sorts of things floating around as the best you can find. But um, you know Russia does have a long-standing relationship with Sudan, so that does sound at least plausible. Um, yeah. And Russia seems to be um, connected with Hamedi. Putin was quite close to Bashir. Um, mm-hmm. You know they they formed a organization called the Moroe Gold Corporation, which was run by the Wagner Network. Um, we hear a lot about the Wagner Group. Basically, a group of right. mercenaries. Basically, Russia's equivalent of um, uh, what was who's the American guys? BlackRock that were running in Iraq right. for years. They keep changing their yes. name. I don't know what their current name is, yes. but uh, Eric, Eric, uh, what's his name? Oh, oh God! This the brother of the former Secretary of Education. Yeah, under Trump. I can't remember. His- I can't remember the yeah. last name, but yeah. They're yeah. basically the Not Russian equivalent people. of that. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. mercenaries, you know. Mercenaries, yeah. by yeah. definition, aren't good people. They'll just <laughs> go where the money is, right? Exactly. They're aim, aim They're business moral. people. Yeah, amoral. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, but and since the removal of Bashir Moscow <laughs> seems to be closely lined to Hamedi, the guy who runs the the RSF, the militia. Yes. Um yeah. Uh, and they, the RSF, have been trying to control more and more of the gold mines in Sudan um, and working oh, yes. with the Wagner Group, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as a return for that, Russia's obviously uh, allegedly providing political and military support to Hamedi and the RSF as part of this war. That said, 
yeah. Burhan is all also has relationships with Russia and is trying to strengthen his relationship with Russia. So you yeah. know, they're, they're, both of these guys. If you if you put yourself in the situation of one of these two generals, Burhan mm-hmm. and Hamedi. I mean, as I said earlier, you, you're uh, when you've got a fairly evenly matched um, tussle, civil war going on. Right. Um, yeah. You're both going to be trying to get whatever kind of international support, military and um, economic support you can get, yeah. and political air cover or whatever, <clears throat> propagandistic right. support, military support, economic support. Um, makes sense, right? You, you, you're going to try mm-hmm. and do deals, as many deals as you can do with whoever you can do it with. Um, right, to, strengthen your hand. Yeah, yeah. yeah, all you care about is winning. It's literally yeah. a life and death battle for you, and you're going to try and do deals wherever you can. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Mm. No, I was just going to say, and you're probably going to get to this. I apologize. Uh, Burham is also his one of the, as far as his most immediate close by supporters is Egypt. Uh, and as you just said, Egypt is very concerned about the dam. They would like uh, Sudan's help on that, being able to control, you know, the, the waterways as well. But um, yeah, e- Egypt is like, we we're, we know this general, we feel comfortable with him. We've worked with him for years. And so, in fact, there, there's been... Um, I think the foreign minister of Egypt has actually been taking calls for people trying to reach Burnham, the general. So they they're more than just hoping him he wins. I think they're you know in whatever way, uh, and we'll find out details later. They're actually backing him politically and maybe militarily, and they're certainly have taken in like forty thousand last time I, I read refugees from Sudan. So Egypt is watching this very closely because, like you, when you describe the region, it affects Egypt immensely. It affects everybody, but Egypt's taking a more active hand than a lot of other countries can because they're right there on the scene. And so we'll get into the history of the area mm-hmm. so, shortly, yeah. but um, mm-hmm. Sudan used to be part of Egypt, um, yes. particularly with the British control it too. So they've always had a very close, yeah. tense Absolutely. Uh, relationship with Egypt. This goes back, you know, thousands of years, um, yeah. literally. China also has considerable interests in Sudan, um, mm-hmm. part of its Belt and Road uh, Global Initiative. and. It's important. Right. We'll get into the history, as I said, in a minute, but important for people to understand that uh, the guy who was president for 30 years until recently, Bashir, um, right. was was part of his, uh, something called the National Islamic Front, hardcore yeah. Sharia Islamists, yeah. um, and the U.S. had sanctions on them for decades, and so the U.S. weren't very involved in this area for a long time. Uh, right. Apart from just randomly bombing them from time to time, as we'll get into. Sure, but sure. so so that's the main reason that China and Russia, and to lesser extent France and the UK, have had interests there. The US had sanctions against them, so you know it was Russia and China that stepped in to fill the gap of you know big foreign brother that they could yes. uh, get economic and military support and trade with, etc. So China's mm-hmm. um, had a very sort of long involvement there, particularly from 2011 through to 2018. Um, they've been deeply involved. With a lot of money, a lot of loans from China to Sudan. Mm-hmm. They've invested in projects, right. pi- oil pipelines, bridges across the Nile. 
textile mills, railway lines, you know, doing the doing sort of the Marshall Plan, um, yeah. the Chinese Marshall Plan there, um, getting right. in, making money available, you know, helping build infrastructure, and then trying to get them into the friendly zone, the Chinese friendly zone, right? Bring them into the zone. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And that's what you do. Everybody does it. And China, um, you know, gets a lot of its mineral resources out of Africa, including Sudan. But the the China Sudan relationship goes way back to like the nineteen seventies. Um, mm. There's been a lot of investment in in Sudan from China, but particularly since China became you know began to become a major economic power. Which has really only right. happened in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. The more and more mm-hmm. um investment in there. Sudan is also a major exporter of products to China. I think in 2021 they exported about eight hundred million dollars worth of products to China. Um and it's been increasing right. like ten percent a year for quite a while. Yeah. I think China is Sudan's second largest trading partner after the United Arab Emirates. And um yeah, as I said, wow. the US um, had sanctions against them for a long time until 2017. Right. Um, I can't. Who was your president in 2017? I can't. Well, can't remember let, who that was. So, so I can't remember that back that yeah. far. Look, let me back it up just a little bit uh, before that point. Yes, um, but before him, Obama did. Um, remove some of the sanctions, but Trump finished it off. And so it's like, well, Bashir's in charge. Obviously, this guy, he's been here for 30 years. He's not going anywhere. I don't know exactly why America did it, but we we removed all the sanctions. And then the the um, the coup in, in 2019 and then the other coup in 2021. So, uh, yeah, the, the sanctions were lifted. Uh, was, that, was that supposed to be good business practice? I really don't know. But it, it feels like America just went, America just went, ah, you're going to do what you're going to do, so let's just lift these sanctions, and maybe we can make a, a buck out of it uh, in the process. Who knows? I don't know. But, yeah, it was definitely Trump who finished off all the sanctions. Well, as we'll see um, uh, later on, uh, when mm-hmm. South Sudan got its independence in 2011, largely right. with the support of the Obama administration, who seemed to mm-hmm. have engineered it, and then you know South Sudan took 75% of the oil and then the US dropped all of the sanctions against South Sudan. Um, right. Oh, you've got all the oil. That was well, a coincidence. We can, we can get rid of the that sanctions. A, um, that's a coincidence, I'm sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it's also a coincidence, I'm sure, that the U.S. <laughs> dropped its sanctions against Sudan in 2017 so American companies could get more involved in the region, and then Bashir was removed from power two years later. Um, mm. No connection there I mean, at all. New, in fact, new. I went to ChatGPT when I was prepping right. for this episode, and I said, "Is uh, the what's going on in Sudan a proxy war? And it said, well, that's a conspiracy theory and there's no evidence, uh, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, but is, you know, <laughs> well, yeah. it's interesting the uh, sort of pro Western propaganda perspective that you get out of Chat GPT, which isn't surprising. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yes, they, they lifted their sanctions, uh, the US did in 2017, uh, but they're still mm-hmm. obviously playing catch up with China yes. and Russia there. And I think that was one of the other. 
justifications for it too was, uh, you know, this is a very strategically important region, particularly as they, you know, sort of made more money out of oil, which was only really discovered there in the 80s. And um, the US was like, well, we can't miss out on this. We need to get more involved, got to start. Um, Yes, Bashir is a brutal dictator, but hey, you know. And yes, he's... He's, uh, you know, they got Sharia law and he's an Islamic fundamentalist. He'd started to tone right. down his story by then anyway, but we'll get into that later on. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and then also, you know, the US's interests in this region, obviously, you would imagine are somewhat connected to the US's attempts at the moment for regime change in Russia, including mm-hmm. drones bombing the Kremlin this week, which... <laughs> uh, uh, the Kremlin have said it was probably an attack by either Ukraine or the US or the two combined. Of course, Ukraine and the US have denied it. But yeah. um, like, they, like the undersea pipe bombing. Go ahead. Go yes, ahead. they denied that as well. We yeah. To- yeah, yeah. Biden administration said, oh, the Putin administration lies. You can't trust them. I'm like, really? Really? Who bombed the Nord yeah. pipeline again? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, anywho, yeah. so yeah, the, obviously, if uh, Russia are getting funding out of Sudan or gold out of Sudan to help support their war in Ukraine, the US have yeah. an interest in shutting that down. In order to shut that down, they need to try yeah. and uh, influence who wins the current civil war between Burhan and Hamedi. Yeah. Um, and so you would have to think that they're, they're you know, Trying to play a role to the what extent to what extent they're you know involved we don't know yet right um, yeah. but as I said before both sides over there Bohan and Hamedi seem to be willing to work with anyone they don't really have any ideological um, restrictions power. yeah it's as I said it's life and All death power. whoever helps me win you're my friend right. now we exactly. as I said at the beginning we know from history that when civil wars are going on in countries like this, particularly rich or well, potentially you know, uh, resource-rich countries uh, that are strategically yes. important uh, in terms of you know, their place on the map, uh, mm-hmm. the country, you know, the large foreign powers are going to try and influence the outcome. Um, yes. And I think the, the, the best example that we have of this which we've talked about many times on the show in the past. I'm going to talk about it again. Is uh, the the example of uh, Victoria Newland in uh, Ukraine in 2014? For first time listeners uh, or people that haven't been paying attention and don't remember, Victoria Newland <laughs> was then the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. She's now right. um, the Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. That's a promotion, um, right? Yes. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Um, she was having a telephone call January 28, 2014, in the middle of the Maidon um, riots revolution going on uh, in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. She did a telephone call with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine at the time, Jeffrey Piat, Piat, and someone managed to record it. Um and leaked it mm. to YouTube. And 
Mm-hmm. Um, I want to play that again. It's about five minutes long because uh, this, again, is, you know, normally when these things happen, um, we don't find out about them at all or we find out about them yeah. 30 years later when someone writes their memoirs or when an investigative journalist like Seymour Hirsch has sources right. that tell him what happened and then the administration denies, denies, denies for decades mm-hmm. until eventually they go, oh, who the fuck cares anymore, and, and it comes out. So, But exactly. this happened almost real time and we got to hear how the US were thinking about the situation in Ukraine in 2014. I'm going to play this clip for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I think we're in play. Um, the the uh, Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, um, especially the announcement of him as deputy prime minister. And, and you've seen some of my notes on the troubles in the marriage right now. So we're trying to get a read really fast on where he is on this stuff. But I think your argument to him, which you'll need to make, I think that's the next phone call we want to set up is exactly the one you made to to Yachts. And I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario. And I'm very glad he said what he said in response. Good. So uh, I don't think Cleach should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I I guess you think... (laughs) In terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Boak and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I'm kind of... I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He... Yats, by the way, is Yatsenuk. He's the guy, mm. you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week. You know, I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay, good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him as the next step? My understanding from that call, but you tell me, was that the big three were going into their own meeting and that Yats was going to offer in that context a, a three-way, you know, a three-plus-one conversation or three-plus-two with you. Is that not? Three-plus-two with you. The uh, <laughs> the guys that are going to form the new government of Ukraine are going to have the U.S. Mm-hmm. ambassador in on the meeting to discuss who's going to be the government of Ukraine. <laughs> He's advising. Just to be clear on what's going on here. Meanwhile, they're having a conversation about who should be in the Ukrainian government and who shouldn't. They're they're working it out amongst themselves. Yeah. How you understood it? Exactly. No, I think, I mean, that's what he proposed. But I think just knowing the dynamic that's been with them where um, Klitschko has been the top dog, he's going to take a while to show up for whatever meeting they've got. He's probably talking to his guys at this point. So I think you reaching out directly to him helps with the – personality management among the three, and it, and it gives you also a chance to move fast on all this stuff and put us behind it, behind it before they all sit down and he um, he explains why he doesn't like it. Okay, good. I'm happy. Why don't you reach out to him and see if he wants to talk before or after? Okay, will do. Thanks. Okay, I've now written, oh, one more wrinkle for you, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, 
can't remember if I told you this or if I only told Washington this, that when I talked to Jeff Feltman this morning, he had a new name for the UN guy, Robert Seri. Did I write yeah. you that this morning? Yeah, okay. I saw that. He's now gotten both Seri and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Seri could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it. And, you know, fuck the EU. No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. And again, the fact that this is out there right now, I'm still trying to figure out in my mind why Yanukovych that. But in the meantime, there's a party of regions faction meeting going on right now. And I'm sure there's a lively argument going on in that group at this point. But uh, anyway, we could uh, we could land jelly side up on this one if we move fast. So let me work on let me work on Klitschko. And if you can just keep I, I think we want to try to get somebody with an international personality to um, come out here and help to midwife this thing. And then the other the other issue is some kind of outreach to Yanukovych. But we probably regroup on that tomorrow as we see how things start to fall into place. So on that piece, Jeff, uh, when I wrote the note, uh, Sullivan's come back to me uh, VFR saying you need Biden. And I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deets to stick. So okay. Biden's willing. OK, great. All right. Thanks. So Biden's willing to uh, help form the new government of Ukraine, make a few phone calls. Um, right. uh, they're, they're- delicate pressure. Jeff yeah. Pyatt, by the way, is uh, now uh, the Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources in the Biden administration. So right. it was leaked and never, never denied by the White House um, that mm-hmm. these two, uh, with Biden's support, were crafting the new government of Ukraine, sitting in on the meetings, deciding who's in and who's out. Right. Didn't lose their jobs. Uh, got promoted yeah. to better jobs. Yes, and are still yes. in the Biden administration. Uh, yes. You know, nearly ten years later. So, and, and of course, it's not just the US who plays it like this. I mean, I'm sure China, Russia, <clears throat> everyone who has any uh, opportunity to try and uh, influence the outcome of these things is doing so. But as I said earlier, we normally don't know about it. Um, it's normally behind-the-scenes, yes. closed-door kind of conversations that we only find out about decades and decades later. But you have to assume, yeah. I think, I think it's reasonable yeah. to assume that these sorts of conversations are going on vis-a-vis Sudan at the moment by all of the all of these players. So it is, yeah. therefore, uh, a proxy war at some level. They're going to be supporting these people with propaganda in their media, with military support, with economic support, or promises of future military and economic and propagandistic support. If you win, we will then X, Y, and Z for you, right? Right. Yeah. If if I could just add on to that real quick. So I was reading one article. Um, See, Burnham has got about 300,000 troops that he can rely on. Amplis has got a a bit of an air force. I I don't know how much, but uh, the other gentleman... Hameti has only got about 100,000 men. He doesn't have much of an Air Force, but he has spent the last 
two, three years um, getting in with local tribes. And and plus there, there was other conflict. There's been a lot of conflicts, as you can imagine, in this region. And he's been he's been using that to get in. So not only is he taking over more of the gold trade, he's getting in with a lot of these local tribes. And he's actually got a couple of strong positions in the capital city where the fighting is at. So uh, the other the uh, other general has the presidential palace. Uh, Hamedi has got two locations um, near the airport and some else and so at, at some point it comes down to boots on the ground but again like you said if you can get the backing of some very powerful people who can either uh, spin the PR or literally ship you weapons or or uh, be able to help you in any way shape or form that's what's probably going to decide this war and I'm sure right now both guys have got teams of people talking to as many uh, powers as they possibly can to get what they need to win and you're right at the end of the day if you win, you get to write the history books, and so you do whatever you have to. Is cruel, and we've all seen footage or video of what's going on there right now, especially in the capital. Hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced, but at the end of the day, neither one of these guys are going to give up. They're going to fight to the death, and they're looking for anybody and more than one who can support them. This is what civil war in this day and age looks like. Yeah. So let's let's do a quick history of Sudan, and by quick I mean quick by our standards. So we're only going to take fifty episodes to do this. Um, so we are or not going back to the dinosaurs because I know that's a touchy <laughs> subject for Tony. I don't want to step on Tony's toes. I only went back to eighteen twenty one. So if you got you go you go ahead and start if you want. Well, today uh, Sudan has a population of about forty five million people. Um, mm-hmm. Makes it roughly. I don't know, sort of twice as large as Australia by population. Uh, right. It's Africa's third largest country by area and the third largest by area in the entire Arab League. It was the largest country mm. uh, by area in Africa and the Arab League until the secession of South Sudan in 2011. Um, right. Now, the name Sudan comes from its geographical location south of the Sahara. Uh, apparently derives ah. from the Arabic Belad al-Sudan, mean land of the blacks, which is a term right. that Arab traders and travelers used when they started coming in via, you know, sort of um, e- Egypt, North Africa. Um, mm-hmm. But Sud, oh, cool. S-U-D, I know in Italian means south. So right. I think, you know, it goes back to PIE, Proto-Indo-European languages and, you know, sort of one of those base words that means South Sud, the land of South and Sahara. The capital right. of Sudan is Khartoum, uh, mm-hmm. and its most populous city is Obdurman, which is part of the metropolitan area of Khartoum. Um, right. Also, Khartoum, the name of the horse that had its head chopped off in The Godfather and placed in the bed of the uh, movie <laughs> producer. And the name <laughs> of the movie producer was what, oh. Ray? Nope, nope. What is it? What is it? Mr. Waltz. Mr. Waltz. Jack Waltz. Jack. Okay. Jack. A little trivia there. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, yeah. Tom goes to see him. Mr. Waltz, I am a yes. lawyer. I have one client. Uh, anyway, Sudan has been settled since at least 8,000 BCE, known to the Romans as Kush. Uh, we've talked about that in, I think, in our Alexander show, in our Roman mm. uh, shows. We've talked about Kush. 
Then it was a Christian kingdom from about the 300s to the 1500s known as Alodia. Also, the region was known as Nubia. We've talked about the Nubians a bit in our Roman and Alexandra mm -hmm. shows. Yes, definitely. In the 1500s, it was run by the Funj people. They're an ethnic group still in present-day Sudan. They sort of rose into power uh, in the early 1500s, overthrew the Christian kingdom of Velodia, and they became a, a sultanate. They became Islamic um, early 1500s. So it was the Funj Sultanate, F-U-N-J, sort of peaked in the mm. sort of late 17th century, then sort of fell apart in the 18th and 19th centuries. 1821, where you start your history, um, mm. the Ottomans, who controlled Egypt, uh, Muhammad Ali, um, before he became a boxer, controlled Egypt in the early <laughs> 1800s. They then conquered uh, northern Sudan, and do you 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 want to go from there? Sure. So yeah. So uh, 1821, uh, Muhammad uh, had his army conquer northern Sudan. His third son finished it off, so they control it. Uh, you go a couple of years. 1899, Britain and Egypt reach an agreement, which Sudan was now run by a governor general appointed by Egypt with British consent. Don't ever forget that. It's basically a crown colony at this point. Um, the formal end of the Ottoman rule comes in 1914. Sir Reginald Wingate um, is sent there in December to occupy Sudan as the new military governor. And again, um, the Sultan of Egypt is involved in this as well. There is a form of independence from 1924 to 1956. Uh, that's when um, they have they they truly do become independent. There's some stuff in the World War II we, we don't have to go into, but in uh, 1954, they have their first elected prime minister, Ismail Az Azhari. Um, he goes along until 1969. A colonel uh, takes over. There's a coup May 25th, 1969. Colonel uh, Namiri, if I'm saying that right, becomes prime minister, uh, and you know you have you have another uh, strong man who's in charge. Then there's a peace agreement in 1972. There's a ceasefire for ten years, and again, this place is racked with conflict, obviously for a very long time. 1989, okay, wait, June wait. 30th. Slow yeah, the fuck yeah, down, dude. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought we were just. Whoop, I apologize. No, okay. no, no. Go ahead. Come on, man. Do we we got to stretch this out? This is us. Okay. Well, don't do the fucking Reader's Digest version. I mean, this isn't, you know, I don't know, whatever that is. I grew up reading Reader's Digest. Yeah, I, I know. It's anyway, obvious. Anyway, please, yeah. please, please slide in there. Read? Slide you mean in there. listening to it as an audio book? Um, right. Chewing on it. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back to when the British uh, took control there and explain one of the reasons why they did was Britain had taken control of Egypt and mm -hmm. the French wanted to fuck with them because the French didn't want the British in there. So the French sure. tried to take Sudan to cut off the Nile, to dam up the Nile oh. to fuck with the British. How'd so that the, work? Well, so the mm. British then sort of went to Sudan, and they ended up, um, they didn't uh, sort of have, it was sort of a peaceful settlement, uh, really, because they didn't, right. um, there was a bit of, bit of fighting went on there, but wasn't too bad because I think the French just gave in because they were, French and um, Napoleon wasn't around, although the guy who led the French campaign was called Marchand, uh, which was also the name of Napoleon's valet in uh, St. Helena, but not related as far as I can tell. Um, right. So, yes, uh, but uh, I'll tell you who did fight in the war 
Um, there's sort of 18 years of war that went on there to varying degrees. But uh, Winston Churchill fought in that at one point mm. and uh, bragged right. that he personally shot at least three savages. So in his words, so congratulations to I'm, I'm Winston sure. Churchill out here. I see you're, you've right. got a your picture of him on your bookshelf there behind you, big fan. Yeah, how many savages? Fan. You're a fan of him because he killed savages, right? That's you. Know, yeah, but, but but it's conflicting for me, as you know. I'm one fourth Cherokee, so I'm conflicted. But the white part of me is huge, huge fan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, okay, so then the British basically control it until 1956, as you said. During World War II, yeah. Mussolini really wanted to um, oh, take control yeah. of Egypt and Sudan. Couldn't conquer Abyssinia without, you know, um, conquering Mustard. East Africa. Yeah. Um, wanted yeah. to unify Libya with Egypt and Sudan. Um, obviously, didn't didn't really succeed. Um, nice mm. guy, Mussolini. Can't mm. remember what happened to him. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Butchered. Had a great palace, though. I love his palace. Yeah. Um, Good to be the king. The Egyptian Revolution happened in fifty two, and, and as we know from all the other shows that we've done, Britain mm-hmm. didn't grant these countries independence, really. Um, no. Britain held on as long as they possibly could, but Britain was economically and militarily fucked after World War II. Um, right. And they, they had no choice but to let stuff go. And they were also under pressure from the US to you know, uh, uh, disperse yeah. the uh, British uh, Empire. Uh, mm-hmm. Churchill held on as long as he possibly could, uh, as did all of the leaders there, and the Queen, um, who right. was in power by the, at this stage, um, yes. in the fifties. Uh, they held she on as long as they possibly could. So. Yeah, she did. Yeah. Now Charlie's uh, spending yeah. it on the coronation. Well, actually, the taxpayers are spending it on the coronation. Yeah, he's uh, keeping. He's keeping his, his money. money. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why yeah. should I pay for my own fucking coronation? What kind of <laughs> bullshit is this? You know. <laughs> I'm only worth oh, an estimated three point oh. eight billion dollars. I'm a, yeah. I didn't get I here possibly by, for we, did, we didn't yeah. get rich by paying for our own coronations, motherfucker. You manage <laughs> you manage the pennies and I'll take care of the yeah. pounds or something. Right, it? literally. So um the Egyptians abolished their monarchy and you know, then you had Naguib and, and Nasser and these guys and, and um the British had to get out of Sudan, they couldn't hold it. Anymore, they right. reluctantly gave up their empire, is the way I'd put it. Oh yeah, but yeah. Um, as they did everywhere, as all of these empires do, when they leave a country, when they're forced to leave a country, they don't just go, mm-hmm. "Okay, well, good luck mm-hmm. to whoever runs it." Um, we're we're <laughs> yeah, walking away. Calm. Yeah, yeah, no hard feelings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they try and play. I a, wish you luck. Yeah, they try and play a role in determining. Who's going to run it afterwards? Um, right, and, and make sure they're going to be friendly to their interests. Of course, um, that's what you do. And yeah. uh, you know, it didn't really work very well in Sudan. But they tried it. Uh, but they, the other thing that doesn't get talked about much in the mainstream media when it comes to these things mm-hmm. is how much wealth was extracted out of Ooh. these countries by the colonial powers. There's a great book I read. Couple of years ago, by an Indian um, politician, 
and scholar right. about the amount of money that the British extracted from India during their occupation of oh, India and the British Raj. Like untold right. amounts of money were extracted from these countries that, yeah. you know, should have been spent to mm-hmm. educate and build the infrastructure um, for yeah. the native populations of these countries, the domestic populations, the indigenous populations, but instead went to England and built the British Empire. Um, well, it costs a lot of money to build Downton Abbey. I mean, you can't just do that. I mean, you know, it takes literally the money of another country. So thank you. And to pay for King Charles's palaces. Um Exactly. No reparations. Dozens. No reparations yeah, yeah. have been nope, paid. No, nope, nope. none of that kind of stuff. We just extracted wealth from your country for yeah. decades, centuries, and, depending on the country, and tough titties. And now you're making us leave. Yeah, so but, I guess we're not friends anymore. Call me. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Like they got Sudan got their independence in 1956. Now this always this is the bit that always gets me. That was only 67 right. years ago. My mother. Yeah was 10 years old when Sudan was granted self-rule. Like, that's nothing. 67 years ago, they got their ability to self-rule. Like, that is astounding and shocking to me. Uh, No wonder the country's fucking basket case. They've only had self-rule for 67 years. And the money they could have used, like you said, has been sucked out. And so they finally they finally get what they, they have. Not, you know, they're on their own. And it, it's, it just makes it harder than it has to be. But here's the question. Let's say somehow magically World War II doesn't come along. How long would have the British Empire lasted? Yeah. I mean, that's bad enough. 67, it could have been much longer. Yeah. In fact, as I always say, say what you want about Hitler. But yeah. um, you know, he ended he ended the British, the British Empire. Empire. So there's that. That the Autobahn. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we should read about Volkswagen. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, <laughs> the love bug. We wouldn't have had the love bug in the seventies without Hitler. Oh, I'm uncomfortable. That's what I always say. Say what you want about Hitler, but at least he killed Hitler. Anyway, um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's a good book that I read uh, by Douglas Johnson, a 2003 book called The Root Causes of Sudan's Civil Wars. So mm. 20 years old, but still worth a read. Right. Um, let me. I'm going to read a bit from this book. He says, President Jimmy Carter once famously referred to the 1953 overdose of Mohammad Mossadegh's elected government, the origin of the Iranian revolutionaries' grievance against the US, as ancient history something which, by definition, should not motivate current political attitudes. Yet what outsiders have forgotten or never knew constitutes the lived experience that motivates the actors in Sudan's wars. This book is directed in part at the institutional amnesia afflicting diplomats, journalists, and development, relief, and human rights workers, anyone who has dipped into a current of the war with only a vague apprehension of its source. Mm. Uh, you know, I like, it, it, I like that. Yeah, institutional amnesia. Uh, we we, we right. forget, you know, what happened before these people took over. All the wealth that was extracted, you know, the yeah. um, lack of they opportunity for education, for political experience, 
working out your political systems, all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to read more exactly. from the book because um, it's he breaks it down. He breaks down the basic causes of the civil wars in Sudan, and I think this is an excellent mm. high-level sort of summary. Sometime after the main text of this book was completed, Joseph Hanlon, author of Peace Without Profit, suggested to me that civil wars in Africa have erupted when the internal tensions of a country are exacerbated by the intervention of external interests. As a general theory, this covers the Sudan's case uncomfortably well, and it is my argument here that the Sudan's recurring civil wars are a product of the following historical factors. One, patterns of governance which developed in the Sudanic states before the 19th century, establishing an exploitative relationship between the centralizing power of the state and its hinterlands or peripheries, mainly through the institutions of slavery and slave raiding, creating groups of peoples with a lastingly ambiguous status in relation to the state. Two, the introduction of a particular brand of militant Islam in the late 19th century, which further sharpened the divide between persons with and without full legal rights within the state. Three, inequalities in economic, educational, and political development within the colonial state of the 20th century, which often built Mm -hmm. upon earlier patterns. Four, Britain's decision, based on political expediency, to grant independence in 1956 to the whole of the Sudan before disparities in development could be addressed and without obtaining adequate guarantees for safeguarding the interests and representation of southern Sudanese. Five, a narrowly based nationalist movement among the northern elite in the Sudan, which confronted the issues of the Sudan's diversity and unequal development by attempting to build a national identity based on the principles of Arab culture and the religion of Islam, leading to the re-emergence of 19th century ideas of governance in centre-periphery relations. Six, Mm. Failure to obtain a national consensus in either the North or the South in the 1970s concerning national unity, regional development, and the balance of power between the central and regional governments. Seven, the weakened state of the Sudan's economy in the 1970s, coinciding with a Southern awareness of the extent of their own natural resources that hastened political instability in the 1980s. Eight, the Sudan's involvement in the international politics of the Cold War, which exacerbated its own internal war, especially Mm. through the distribution of arms on an unprecedented scale. Nine, the re-emergence of militant Islam as a major political and economic force, both nationally and internationally, and the qualifications this has placed on the rights of non-Muslims. Ten, the interest of foreign governments and foreign investors in the Sudan's natural and mineral resources, especially water and oil. Mm. Um, Terrific overview, I think, to put all of this in context. And again, you you don't get that kind of perspective in the mainstream media coverage of this. They're like, oh, these silly black people are fighting. Um, Right. You know, how did we get here? That's a large part of the story. It's 98% of the story. 
Right. And, and when you were reading that, uh, and of course, uh, as, as you're reading this, and I'm sitting there thinking, and of course, it perpetuates a negative stereotype of blacks, uh, racism, whatever, uh, or anything uh, anything to do with Africa. Uh, oh, look, they can't get along, you know, but, but we're the one, the Westerners are the ones who screwed them up in the first place. And even with news things today, you, you see these and you're like, oh, those poor people and uh, whatever. And yet we're, we, we certainly don't think of them as equals. And so a lot of that mindset that the British had, that other had it's still lingering today uh it just um it's just gauche to say it out loud but it, it, it's there mm. um and and like you were saying um uh, as far as the islamic legal code that comes in in 1989 when bashir takes over it's a bloodless military coup but he establishes that at a national level and the other countries around him are not exactly besides the united states are not exactly excited by that so uh there's some stability with bashir from 89 to uh to what to 2019 or whatever, but again at the cost of the people's freedom and uh, ability to make their own choices. Yeah, so Bashir was a colonel in 1989. Um, there'd been a number of coups, as you said earlier, all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but 89 One was a communist coup. coup yeah, but it didn't last very long. Didn't, yeah, yeah, didn't really work out. Yeah. Um, so where he takes power in 89, basically carries out purges, executions of the upper ranks in the army, yeah. banning associations, political parties, political independent parties. newspapers, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. 1993, yes. he appoints himself president and disbands the Revolutionary Command Council. He takes all of the mm-hmm. executive uh, executive and legislative powers. Um, yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm going to say that right now. Look, yeah. I, I um, I'm reading a really good book at the moment by a Canadian mm-hmm. scholar, Daniel Bell. Um, mm-hmm. It's called the China Model, and it's looking at mm. China's political model versus the West. And you know, he makes a lot of really excellent points about how eh, democracy, you know, not that good. You it's know, a, and he wrote this book. Shoot before Trump became yeah. president, but he's just talking about how democracy is just yeah. really ineffective as a political system and um, gets taken over by powerful, rich interests and people think they have a say in what's going on, but they don't really. They and, don't. Um, yeah. and people get to vote, but people are dumb, so they don't know what they're doing when they vote and they get manipulated. Right. And Easily. Exactly. And he, he exactly. makes the point that one of the reasons why China has gone from being mostly a third world poverty stricken country in the 70s mm-hmm. to now the largest or second largest economic power on the planet in you know 40 yeah. years is because they have a government that's a meritocracy not a democracy you right. rise through the ranks right. in China's political system based on how successful you've been at solving problems at a local level uh, and you mm-hmm. get you slowly get given more and more power and see how you perform yeah. and if you perform well you go to the next rank and how it's and a much more effective form of you know social organization and government than a democracy is so right. uh, anyway long story short there are arguments for a centralized government centralized power um if it's run well Obviously, if it's not mm-hmm. run well, it, it, it can be a disaster. And, yeah. you know, Bashir's rule um, wasn't great for Sudan in many ways. 
But the important thing to understand too is that Bashir was brought to power in large part by a guy called Hassan al-Turabi. Mm. Turabi was the, the architect, many people believe, of the 1989 coup. He right. was basically the guy who ran the National Islamic Front that I mentioned earlier on, sort of a hardcore Islamic fundamentalist organisation that wanted uh, to install Sharia law in the country. And, mm. um, he and he and Bashir were like a team. Uh, Bashir was the you know the 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 general. Turabi was right. a politician slash you know Islamic uh, fundamentalist. Right. Um, and during the late eighties, after they took power and and into the early nineties, he actually Turabi reached out to Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden, however you want to pronounce it, good old OBL, right. and right. invited him to come and live in Sudan, which he did for a oh, while. He lived right. there for a few years. He had businesses there. And um, the U.S. Uh, wasn't happy about that, particularly after al-Qaeda's bombing of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania uh, during the mm-hmm. Clinton years, and they launched something called Operation Infinite Reach, nice little, in, in the tradition <laughs> of humble military operations. Um, As a, no one is safe from us Anywhere, yeah, I like that. That's that's Barry and Stan level yeah. titling right there. Um, yeah. And Clinton authorized the bombing of the mm-hmm. Al Shifa pharmaceutical factory in Sudan in nineteen ninety eight. Now, again, you won't hear much about this in the current coverage of Sudan, but it's important, yeah. and we're going to talk about why. But uh, getting getting back a step, um, <laughs> the Americans you know, uh, got shitty with Sudan because they'd invited bin Laden to go and live there. Why? Well, bin, da- bin Laden's a terrorist. Who made bin Laden a terrorist? Well, we did, the US, uh, when we funded the Mujahideen to try right. and take over Afghanistan in Trained the them, 70s and 80s. Yeah. So yeah. We, 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 yeah. we built him into a force um, right. and we built al-Qaeda, essentially, because they come out of the Mujahideen. They're a spinoff of the Mujahideen. But but mm-hmm. you know now you're being friendly to them. No, that's you know he's no, our not cool. He's our guy, exactly. not your guy. Huh? Right. Um, he'd been our guy all through the eighties, fighting the war in Afghanistan yeah. against the Russians. Yeah. Um, we hugged it out. Yeah, yeah. But now he's not our guy anymore, and you can't have him either. Now, exactly. I want to talk about the 1998 bombing of the Al Shifa pharmaceutical factory because I'm pretty sure most people won't know much about this. Um, particularly, right. most Americans won't know much about it. I asked Chrissy; she didn't know about it. She was right. you know, 19 when this happened; wasn't paying attention. Um, gotcha. The Al Shifa pharmaceutical factory was opened in 1997, funded by a bunch of international players, including the U.S., Germany, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was the largest pharmaceutical factory in Khartoum employed over 300 workers, produced medicine for both human and veterinary uses. Right. And right. Uh, produced a, a lot of malaria medicine, chloroquine, um, which most of us know because Trump was saying it was going to cure COVID. Um, <laughs> but big thing in Africa, obviously, malaria medicine, yes. very, very important yes. for Africa. Absolutely. Um 
the factory was destroyed in August of 1998, been opened for just over a year, destroyed by a missile mm-hmm. attack authorised by Clinton. Right. Uh, killed one employee, wounded 11, but more importantly, wiped out a major source of medicine for Sudan. Jeez. And right. the impact of that was dramatic, and I'll get into why. But here's the thing. Um, Clinton claimed at the time that right. it was being used for the for making chemical weapons, VX nerve agent, and that the plant right. had ties to al-Qaeda, was basically making chemical weapons for al-Qaeda. Right. Um, Justification. Subsequent uh, reporting determined that none of that was true. It was it was all bullshit. There was no evidence right. for it. But interestingly, the bombing took place one week after the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke. Nope, nope, coincidence. Uh, national security. Uh, nope. Ah, uh, shit. There's no such thing as coincidences, right? It also took place, the bombing, about a month after the film Wag the Dog came out. Oh. Have you ever seen Wag the Dog? Yeah. I don't remember much, but I saw it, yeah. I don't remember much either. I mean, I saw it when it came out. Here's the synopsis for people of the film Wag the Dog, directed by Barry Levinson, starred Dustin Hoffman, uh, Robert De Niro, a bunch of very high-level stars. Uh, yeah, was Chris, Warren Beatty in that, or am I thinking of somebody? Anyway, no, no, sorry, I know the one you're that. thinking of. There was another political film. Um, yes, yes. Here's sorry. the synopsis of the film. Now, keep in mind, this came out um, like a month before the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke. The president right. is caught making advances on an underage girl inside the Oval Office less than two weeks before the election. Conrad Breen, a top spin doctor, is brought in by presidential aide Winfred Ames to take the public's attention away from the scandal. He decides to right. construct a fictional war in Albania, hoping the media will concentrate on this instead. Breen contacts Hollywood producer Stanley Motts to create the war, complete with a theme song and fake film footage of a fleeing or orphan to arouse sympathy, the hoax is initially successful with the president quickly gaining ground in the polls. This came out a month before the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke. Um, And then a week after the scandal broke, Clinton bombed this pharmaceutical factory saying that it was making chemical weapons for Um, Al-Qaeda. Now, at the time, by the way, the title of the movie Wag the Dog comes from an old joke. Um, which they quote at the beginning of the film, why does a dog wag its tail? Because the dog is smarter than its tail. If the tail was smarter, the tail would wag the dog. <laughs> I like that. Mm. <laughs> so the um, justification for the bombing that they were making chemical agents for al-Qaeda was disputed by the owners of the plant, the Sudanese government, and other governments, yeah. including the German government. And American officials later acknowledged that, quote, the evidence that prompted President Clinton to order the missile strike on the Schieffer plant was not as solid as first portrayed. Uh, in fact, they said there was yeah. no proof that the plant had been manufacturing yeah. or storing nerve gas as initially suspected by the Americans or had been linked to Osama bin Laden, who was a resident of Khartoum in the 1980s. 
US action um, at the time, they also hit al-Qaeda camps in Afghanistan where bin Laden had uh, moved after he had been um, asked by Sudan to leave in 1996. Hold on. Right. I think I I remember that. Was it? I remember footage of training camps being wiped out, but I, yeah, that's all I can remember. Uh, The German ambassador to Sudan from 1996 to 2000, Werner Daum, informed Mm -hmm. the German foreign ministry on the day of the bombing that the plant was not a factory for chemical weapons. He said the factory, quote, mainly produced human medicines such as antibiotics, anti-malarial medication, anti-diarrheal medicines, infusion fluids, and some veterinary medicines. Um. And so, uh, yeah, even the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research wrote a report in 1999 that questioned the attack on the factory, suggesting that the evidence wasn't legit. James Risen reported in the New York Times, now the analysts renewed their doubts and told Assistant Secretary of State Phyllis Oakley that the CIA's evidence on which the attack was based was inadequate. Miss Oakley asked them to double-check. Perhaps there was some intelligence they had not yet seen. The answer came back quickly. There was no additional evidence. Miss Oakley called a meeting of key aides and a consensus emerged Contrary to what the administration was saying, the case tying al-Shifa to Mr. Bin Laden or to chemical weapons was weak. The chairman of the al-Shifa factory uh, told reporters, I had inventories of every chemical and records of every employee's history. There were no such nerve gas chemicals being made here. Now, Sudan asked the US for an apology for the attack, but the US refused. Sudanese government asked the United Nations Security Council to conduct an investigation of the site to determine if there was any evidence that chemical weapons were being produced there. The United States blocked the Security Council investigation. Uh, They also also blocked an independent laboratory analysis of dirt samples being taken there. Um, don't need to. Yeah, don't need to. No, there's no. no don't don't, yeah. don't you don't need to look into this. It's, it's fine. But it's ancient history. In, in fact, Clinton went on to say, not only were there chemicals there, and I can't stress this enough, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. So he's 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 two for two. As far as I'm concerned, he's a he's a great American hero. <laughs> Fuck me. Anyway, sorry. Go on. The Observer. Um, newspaper wrote the loss of this factory is a tragedy for the rural communities who need these medicines right um the one of their correspondents patrick wintour said the plant provided 50% of sudan's medicines and its destruction has yes. left the country with no supplies of chloroquine the standard treatment for malaria he also noted that the british government who publicly supported the us's bombing campaign refused Mm. requests to resupply chloroquine in emergency relief until such time as the Sudanese can rebuild their pharmaceutical production. Um, That's a dick move. Yeah. Dick Um, move. The German ambassador I mentioned before, Werner Dahl, wrote an article in 2001 in which he called... um, uh, He called it a, a, a tragedy. He said several tens of thousands of deaths of Sudanese civilians were caused by a medicine shortage, um, which he said was a reasonable guess. Now, 
Um, there have been no major studies done on this. As far as I could see, the US shut down any attempts at studying the yeah. impact of it, the results of it. So uh, also there was a lot of aid agencies in Sudan at the time, according to Human Rights mm-hmm. Watch, that were wholly or partially manned by Americans who were evacuated out of the country after the bombing out of fear of retaliation. So not only did they lose their medicines, but all of the aid efforts that were there were shut down. So it right. was it was a, a huge, huge tragedy for Sudan, yeah. which seems to have been, um, you know, Clinton at least, you know, if you want to be generous, uh, right. Made a horrendous attack uh, without yeah. solid justification. If you yeah. don't want to be as generous, did it as a wag the dog scenario. He saw the wag right. the dog film and went, "Hey, that's a great idea. Why don't we? <laughs> why don't we do more of that? Let's share. Let's, let's bomb something. Let's bomb yeah. something yeah. so I can look presidential." Um, right. uh, well, there was a time when um, I'm sorry. Just there, there was a time when, at least in in diplomatic circles, there was a saying: "If you break it, you own it, or if you break it, you fix it." Now, now we bomb this without much evidence. We don't apologize. We don't fix, and the British don't send money. I mean, wow! No wonder these people have been struggling for you know with the Western powers treating them like that. But and and you and I'm just sorry. I'll just add this real quick. Fast forward to today, you probably, when you were getting ready for the show, probably saw um, all the evacuations, people getting out, that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. But obviously, things don't change unless there's money to be made. Uh, who cares? But anyway, so I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's just amazing how things don't change very much as the decades go by. I guess because humans haven't changed very much. Mm. So, as I mentioned before, the the Sudanese government had already asked Bin Laden to leave the country in 1996, and this bombing right. happened two years later. And they did that. The Sudanese did that in order to try and, you know, uh, f- be friendly to Western governments. Sure. Um, Mark Huband wrote in the Financial Times that the attack shattered the expected benefits of a political shift at the heart of Sudan's Islamist government towards a pragmatic engagement mm. with the outside world. So from Sudan's perspective, we went, fuck me. We we already got yeah. him out of the country. We thought you'd be, you know, nice to us. Now yeah. you bomb our yeah. number one medicine factory, as you know, based on no fucking evidence. You won't apologize. Right. You shut down any investigation yeah. of it. Journalist Jason Burke, in his book, Al-Qaeda, Casting a Shadow of Terror, wrote that Operation Infinite Reach merely confirmed to Bin Laden and his close associates and others with similar views worldwide that their conception of the world as a cosmic struggle between good and evil was the right one. Mm. Christopher Hitchens, RIP, wrote that the factory, quote, could not have been folded like a tent and spirited away in a day or so, and the United States had diplomatic relations with Sudan. Well, then, what was the hurry? There's really only one possible answer to that question. Clinton needed to look presidential for a day. Yes. I might be a piece of shit guy, but rely on me to protect American interests. Ding! I mean, what the fuck? What the actual fuck? In 2001, The Guardian reported that the factory's owner, Salah Idris, vigorously denied that he or the factory had any link with such weapons or any terrorist group. He attempted to Mm -hmm. sue the US government for £35 million after hiring experts to show that the plant made only medicines, um, right. but Washington contested the lawsuit 
and the court dismissed the case under the political question doctrine. Doctrine. I'm um, shocked. Yeah, shocked. Yeah. So no money, huh? Yeah. You know, a little bit of history between the U.S. and Sudan and Bill Clinton and the Democrats, uh, who you know I know a lot of Americans think are the good guys, but. Um, not, yeah. not necessarily when they do crazy shit like this. And this was only, what, right. 25 years ago. Before yeah. uh, the 2000 presidential election in Sudan, Al-Turabi, the guy who ran the National Islamic Front, uh, he and Bashir had fallen out at this point. Turabi yeah. tried to introduce a bill to reduce the presidential powers uh, mm. Bashir ordered a dissolution of the government, declared a state of emergency. Tarabi got arrested. He was sort of arrested on and off then for the rest of his life, basically. Um, oh, my God. And, yeah. and died in 2016. Interestingly, before that, in 1992, he was attacked mm-hmm. by a Sudanese karate black belt master who... Sure. Karate chopped him twice in the neck and put him into a coma. There's got to be a movie. Please tell me you're writing the script. You're having Chat GPT writing the writing script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get good during the writer's strike. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Wah, wah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. For fuck's sake. You got to watch those karate people. Oh my God. All right. Uh, so, also in the early 2000s, um, you know, basically, there was this this um, uh, rebel movements started rising up uh, to to yeah. fight against Bashir's government. The Sudan Liberation Movement slash Army, known as the SLM slash A, and the Justice and Equality Movement (JEM). They were from Darfur, which is where the Janjaweed uh, militias are also right. from. It's a big region West. in yeah, yes, Western Sudan. Yeah. They mm-hmm. rose up in the early 2000s, accused uh, Bashir's government of oppressing non-Arab Sudanese in favour of Arab Sudanese. That started right. the war in Darfur, uh, a.k.a. the Land Cruiser War, because they were all riding around Land Cruisers, Toyota Land Cruisers. Right. I and Bashir's government responded by carrying out a campaign of ethnic cleansing against Darfur's non-Arabs. Jesus. Hundreds of thousands of civilians killed. Um, it's yeah. since been described as a genocide. The ICC, the International mm-hmm. Criminal Court in The Hague, has issued two arrest warrants for al-Bashir, but he's currently, as I said earlier, in prison in Sudan. Um, yeah. But, you know, interesting point here is, is, as we said earlier, despite him carrying out this act of genocide, the U.S., mm-hmm under both the Obama and Trump administrations, reduced sanctions on Sudan and, um, you know, were buddying up to him before he was removed from power. Um, I think you'll find tainted oil burns just as well as untainted. So don't really matter, you know, blood diamonds, diamonds, whatever. Yeah, so they, they Trump finished that off, and we were certainly getting our sweet part of the crude. Hmm. Um, oh, and just yeah. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say something about in 2013, but I didn't want to step on your toes. I'm going there anyway, so go there. Okay. All right. So in 2013, Al Bashir, obviously, he sees um, that a lot of people aren't are liking him. They don't like his policies. Genocide has a tendency to do that. He's like, okay, slow your roll. 
I won't run for re-election. You've got my scouts. I was never a scout, but scouts, he lied. And in 2015, he runs. I'm sure it was rigged. Uh, and that's when and after that is when Trump um, finished off the sanctions. And that's and, and by late in 2018, when massive protests are going up, the, the price of everything is tripling. The people are being hit. Foreign cu- currency is be, you know, out of the country. Inflation's crazy. And yeah, and he starts raising prices on everything to kind of compensate for uh, inflation and for uh, foreign investment leaving, which people tend to not like. Mike, and they went from bitching to rising up with whatever weapons they could get their hands on. Yeah, but um, before that, as we mentioned earlier, so the Obama administration helped organize the secession mm-hmm. of South Sudan with 75% of the country's oil interests in 2011, mm-hmm. um, instantly recognized them, and then instantly got rid of all of the sanctions. Um, thinking that it would be a great opportunity for U.S. uh, and U.S.-friendly interests to play a bigger role in oil in that region. Uh, Didn't really work out, though. Um, Mm. uh, But then in 2017, as we said, Obama signed an executive order that basically lifted most of the sanctions in Sudan and its assets, its foreign assets. Then uh, in October 2017, Trump lifted the remaining sanctions against Sudan. Mm -hmm. Um, According to Bloomberg at the time, decision will open oil field services to U.S. investment. So Ah. not, um, not hiding the truth behind the byline there, like just, yep, (laughs) we're lifting the sanctions so we can try and get more of the oil revenue. But right. uh, in 2018, when this hadn't gone very well for the U.S. interests, the, mm-hmm. the Trump administration placed sanction on 15 South Sudanese oil firms, quote, no. due to them being a source of substantial revenue that, through public corruption, is used to fund the purchase of weapons and other material that undermine the peace, security, and stability of the country. Right. Now, yeah. let's note one thing here. Who financed <laughs> the 9-11 attacks? Saudi Arabia? The Saudi government. Now yeah, um, yeah. I'm going to re- I'm going to read out now the list of sanctions that the U.S. government has placed on Saudi Arabia for its involvement okay. in both the 9/11 tax and wahhabist how- terrorism around the world. You ready? How how long is this going to take? Uh, not long. Uh, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. Um, All right. Money yeah. talks and bullshit walks. Remember, yeah. remember, so, Trump went to Saudi Arabia and took that photograph with, with the big yeah, glowing the orb. orb. <laughs> yeah. Did someone? Yeah, and the sword of destiny. Where the fuck that was? Yeah. I don't know what the hell. So uh, yeah. he's he's putting sanctions on South Sudanese oil firms for supporting terrorism, yes. whilst at the same time going and getting naked and lubed up with Saudi Arabia, kissing ass. Exactly. And it's not just Trump. Yeah. You know, July last year, oh, yeah. Biden went and fist bumped uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. After he the, wiped all the blood off his hand. Yeah. From the, the guy Shigar- who gave yeah. the order to kill yeah. Jamal Khashoggi with an axe. Now. Yes. Yeah. Let's see if we can unpick this, Ray. Why do you think okay. right. the US would place sanctions on South Sudan 
for using oil revenues to support terrorism, but not right. place sanctions on Saudi Arabia for using oil revenues to support terrorism, including terrorist attacks on the United States. Right, right. Um, I'm going to take a guess. And isn't Saudi Arabia, I don't know what the official term is. I think it's shit ton. Don't they buy a shit ton of weapons from us that keeps all those uh, arms manufacturers going uh, so they can try out their weapons on you know other people? But uh, yeah, when you, when you buy a lot of weapons from America, we tend to look the other way and give you a fist bump or a high five when, when occasion calls for it. Yeah, but it goes deeper than that. Why did oh, the, I'm why sure are they does. allowed to buy weapons from you? Why aren't there sanctions in place to stop them from buying weapons from you? Oh, no, I just assumed it was the the money alone, but no, please please tell me what's below. Well, my guess would saying. be the Saudis are US partners when it comes to oil. Right. Both in terms of being a customer of Saudi oil and also, right. you know, cooperating on the it, mining and refining and distribution of it. Whereas the oil the companies region. in Sudan, yeah. the U.S. hasn't been able to uh, get much traction oh, there. So fuck them. Fuck them. Fuck exactly. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Money, baby. Money and power. Yeah. I'll get into the oil interests there in a minute. So mm-hmm. Bashir in 2019, as we said, uh, been in power for more than 30 years, refused to step down. There yeah. was this convergence of opposition groups against him. And, right. you know, he retaliated by arresting a bunch of people. A lot of people died. But basically he was overthrown um, yes. by, the, by the Sudanese Armed Forces and uh, the RSF, you know, just a, a coalition of opposition forces yeah. against him. Yeah. Because That's they, what it took. Yeah. Because they wanted to implement a uh, friendly uh, Western-style democracy no, yeah. just because yeah. they wanted to take over, and <laughs> they're like, "Yeah, you've 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 yeah. you've had it power too long. It's you've had scary. it. Yeah, time yeah. for somebody else to have power." Yeah. Now, interestingly, exactly. back in two thousand and ten, mm-hmm. WikiLeaks, before um, uh, Julian Assange was imprisoned for the rest of his natural life, uh, whilst at the same time this week, I see Joe Biden gave a speech talking about how evil Russia is for imprisoning an American journalist. Um, Distasteful. Yes. And how Joe Biden believes in the freedom of the press. Yeah. Uh, but at hero. the same time, the Australian Prime Minister today, Anthony Albanese, was complaining in right. our media over the fact that he's been trying to uh, use diplomacy to get the United States to let Julian Assange go, and he's getting nowhere. Biden's coming here soon. For a quad yeah. meeting, and Albanese said he's going to bring up the discussion with him in person again when he comes here. But yes, Good. so far uh, Joe yeah. Biden's belief in freedom of the press does not extend <laughs> to journalists that uh, are criticised the United States. It's selective. It's selective. selective. Yeah. yeah. Uh, freedom shit. Yeah. Anyway, back in 2010, Julian Assange mm-hmm. WikiLeaks released diplomatic cables where a U.S. diplomat. Yeah was suggesting that Bashir had $9 billion stashed away in UK banks. Hey, 30 years. Impossible. Uh, yeah, that's that's not yeah. much per yeah. year, over 30 yeah. years. What's yeah. like $9 billion? 
<laughs> divided by 30, that's only 300 million a year. I mean, come on. Oh, that chump change. That's not even trying. Chump change. Between uh, the gold, the port, the agriculture, yeah. and the oil. Yeah. That's nothing. It's nothing. Now, uh, when he was arrested, uh, $130 mm-hmm. million was found in his house. And he's like, come on, that's not even, that doesn't even kind of cover a weekend away. You know, but come on. Um, right. Chump change. But I don't think they found Jeez. this $9 billion. It's in an account somewhere. Okay. So they had this um, sort of transitional government that was put into place. Uh, an economist, right. 61-year-old economist called Abdallah Hamdok was sworn in originally. Um, he was the mm-hmm. former prime minister sworn back in. He initiated talks with the IMF and the World Bank, <coughs> who... Uh, as we all know, affronts for the United States government mostly. Um, and that's the yeah. other angle here too. Whilst the US doesn't have a large involvement there yet in terms of oil and mineral resources interests, they have mm-hmm. had a large involvement from an IMF level. Uh, you know, the IMF, mostly run by the United States, uh, always has mm-hmm. been, was created by the United States after the Bretton Woods Conference, um, in towards the end of World War II, and is right. designed like ostensibly the mission for the IMF and the World Bank is to prevent financial collapse of countries and all of the tensions that go into that. Really, it's you know if you read the analysis, uh, particularly third world analysis of the IMF, don't ignore the analysis that comes out of the mm-hmm. West. But if you read the, right. the economists and uh, uh, former government officials of third world countries, they were quite clear uh, with their consensus that the IMF is essentially a tool of U.S. imperialism, and its countries are designed, its policies are designed to keep countries in debt to the US basically and give them access to their yeah. resources by you know implementing sort of uh policies open door policies and austerity measures to keep the population down and poor um it's a form of IMF yeah. and the World Bank are a form of economic warfare mostly run by the United States and its allies to keep third right. world countries down and in debt and their populations poor yeah. Um, there's plenty of stuff on that if people want to dig into it and read it. Um, I was watching a really good uh, YouTube video recently by an African economist who works at the New School. I think it's based in mm. Washington or New York. Um, right. Anyway, he gave a good long talk about uh, how the IMF works. Anywho, um, so there was this uh, – uh, New government that was sworn in, uh, got the IMF involved, but um, mm-hmm. and Saudi Arabia and the UAE got involved after Bashir was out, um, invested significant sums of money to try and stabilise the country. Yeah. But um, then there was a coup d'etat already in 2021. Then there was another one. There was in September. There was another one in October 2021. Um, and it all just started to fall apart. Burhan, who was ostensibly running the country uh, after the coup, mm-hmm. declared a state of emergency. Yeah. Um, ha- Hamdok was uh, reinstated as prime minister. But Yay. Yeah. Oh. Burhan really <laughs> retained control. Then it basically all fell apart. Um, Hamdok resigned yeah. in early 2022 after some deadly protests. 
Um, there were more protests, there were coups, and yeah. basically that brings us up to earlier today, yeah. uh, earlier this year, April this year. Uh, there just April fifteenth, yeah. Power struggles between Burhan and uh, Hamedi and the yeah. Janjaweed uh, militia. Hundreds of people killed, and um, they're basically fighting each other for supremacy. Yeah. In in the well, region, let me ask you about that because, like most Americans, you know, I'm not paying attention to what's going on in Sudan, and so I start reading this, and so so like you're right, the Hamdok steps down, and now you've got two military leaders who joined together to, you know, uh, to supposedly bring their country freedom, or whatever. So you've got two guys, and clearly, it's not a good idea to have two military men or any military man or woman, whatever, running a country. So the idea is. They're negotiating with the outside world. And what it is, is from 2021 or early 2022 to April of 2023, the idea was we were going to slowly transition to a to a civilian-led government. So uh, Hamedi was going to take his forces and fold them into the regular army. Which, of course, the first thing I thought of is well, he loses his own men. The only thing, the only reason he's still there, the only reason he's viable. It's because he's got his own army. If he folds them into the regular army and he loses control of them, he's got nothing. There's no way he's going to do that. And as far as Birmingham, he's he's supposedly going to go from because he's been around for a while. He's going to go from ruling being pretty much the ruler of the country again because of his army to giving it all up to a civilian government. That just goes against human nature. But however it happened, th- these two are stringing everybody along. They go, oh yeah, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And the closer we get to April 15th of this year, uh, Hamdadi started scattering his forces throughout the capital, again, uh, supposedly for security, but I think it was he had no intention. He had no intention of giving up power any more than Burnham did. Now, that's my personal interpretation of it, but it certainly does, you know, based on the reading of history that we've been doing over the years, there was no way it was asinine to think that these two guys were going to willingly walk away from positions of power. And if the other guy was able to save up billions of dollars in 30 years, I'm sure these guys wanted their cut too. It just goes against what we know as far as what humans do. We do not walk, we do not give up power easily. I, I I don't understand how this kind of came as a shock. Now that I've read about it, I don't understand how it came as a shock to anybody. But that's my personal take. Uh, what about you? Yeah. I mean, of course, it was always going to end here. Um, but just speaking of the proxy war aspect of this, there's a guy yes, called please. David John Wakali, who is the CEO at something called the South Africa Group, Strategic Communications Africa. Right. He's also uh, the founder of Environmental Africa. Used to be a correspondent for Radio France International. Um, he's written a couple of books on uh, Africa. I think he's from Kenya originally, mm-hmm. but on some of the challenges um, going on in Africa, he's got a great TikTok uh, account, and he posted this video that went viral where he's talking about his take on what's happening in Sudan. I'm going to play this because um, mm. I think it's interesting cool. to get an African perspective. And that is going on in Sudan. What's happening there is more than meets the eye. And it's time for the world to discuss the actual truth of what is going on there. America and Russia are at it again. 
just as they did 60 years ago during the Cold War, when they fought proxy wars right in Africa, leading to the death of thousands of innocent Africans. They are at it again in Sudan, fighting a proxy war. Let me explain. Two factions of the Sudanese military are fighting each other. One of them is led by Lieutenant General Mohamed Hamdan, head of the paramilitary group known as Rapid Support Forces. The other faction is led by the Sudanese Army Chief, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. So why are they fighting? This is where Russia and USA come into the picture. You see, in the last couple of months, Russia has finalized a deal with Sudan to establish Russia's naval base in Sudan's Red Sea coast. America is not too happy with that. Actually, they're furious. America's ambassador to Sudan, John Godfrey, expressly warned Sudan not to seal that deal with Russia, but they're going ahead and doing just that. And so when the paramilitary unit began fighting the other faction of the army, that wasn't happening in a vacuum. The big problem is that you're not going to hear this in the mainstream media. Neither are you going to hear a lot of African governments voicing this, which is very unfortunate because Africa must learn to speak its truth and stand on this truth because truth will set you free. So it is left to the African people, we the African people, to speak this truth and tell America and Russia to get off Africa, to get their hands off Africa. The days of the Cold War, the days of the shenanigans of the Cold War are completely over, and they cannot fight proxy wars in Africa at the expense of innocent African lives. That has to stop. The fighting in Sudan must stop. The puppet masters must stop their evil, diabolic games. Here is... Yeah. <clears throat> so, wow. to his perspective, David him. John yeah. Wakali... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I I was uh, when I was doing research for this, there was one Telegraph reporter who said, you know, I'm not really sure if the U.S. is backing one side of Russia's. I think it's too soon to tell. And I'm like, who's paying? Who's writing your check? Because either they're being backed, or they're or they were being backed, or they're being backed now. Because now that they're fighting, you know, the Americans and the Russians are going to get in. Yeah, Russia's been trying to get a port in the Red Sea for quite some time. Now it looks like it might happen. Of course. Well, let's put it this way. If Biden is willing to blow up Russia's pipeline and risk actual war, direct war with Russia, we certainly won't have any trouble backing a guy who's willing to kill another side who, you know, if if America's side wins, then maybe we shut down Russia's port uh, on their coast. So again, no one gives up power willingly, and the Americans certainly aren't going to give up their uh, their dominance on the global stage willingly. We will do we will lie about it, but we will pretty much do anything we need to keep, to keep this status quo because it benefits us tremendously. There should be not a shock to anyone. No, and Sorry. that's it's actually public U.S. Geopolitical strategy it came out in the PNAC report, right. you know, the project for a new American century mm-hmm. that came out just before 9 11 um, by the uh, by Cheney and Rumsfeld and those guys. Uh, literally uh, says, I'm, I'm, I'm making yeah. this up here, but uh, basically, the America's strategic objective is to make sure mm-hmm. it has no military or economic rivals anywhere in the world um, to, to right. crush any opposition 
to any sort yeah. of rival emerging. So that's yeah, which makes sense, as you said. If you're the yeah. most powerful country in the world, you don't want any competitors. You want to. You don't walk away from that. No, Fuck no. You want to crush yeah. them, which in any way you can. Uh, right. Now, uh, uh, Bukali mentioned John Godfrey, the U.S. ambassador to Sudan. He's been the ambassador since 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting to look at the the timing of some of these events. So, uh, Obama and Trump removed the sanctions in 2017. Then Bashir right. gets overthrown after 30 years in power. Two years later. Um, mm-hmm. then Godfrey becomes the ambassador in 2022, and this round of violence breaks out in 2023. Now, he's the first diplomat to serve a permanent role there since 1996 before they wow. the Clinton bombing happened and they got rid of um, right. bin Laden. Uh, uh, Godfrey, from 2007 to 2009, he was stationed in the U.S. Embassy in Libya just before mm-hmm. the Arab Spring oh, protests broke out in 2011, which right. resulted in the execution of Gaddafi, which made Hillary Clinton so happy. Let's let's play the clip of Hillary Clinton talking about Gaddafi again, shall we? So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed Yes, We came, we saw, <laughs> he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, I'm sure it did. We came, we saw, he died. She's very oh, happy about that. Flippant. Yeah. Yeah, jeez. So, you anyway, know, when you see yeah. these diplomats move to areas where these things happen a little bit after yeah. the time that they're there yeah. over and over again, you start to go, okay, what's the connection between, yeah. is it coincidence or are they there yeah. to foment these sorts of problems? Who knows? Yeah. Does he have a skill set that is needed in that area at this time? Things like that. So let's talk a little bit about oil there in a little bit more detail. It was discovered there by Chevron in the 1970s, but the Mm -hmm. oil fields straddled the North-South divide. And and just talking about the North-South divide for a second, um, what happened is the Islamic uh, Arabs came you know in through north africa through egypt and worked their way south mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. never fully penetrated sudan so you ended up with the northern part of sudan which was largely arab and islamic the southern part of right. sudan which was mostly african uh large christian populations gotcha okay. uh, also happened to be in the region that had most of the oil coincidentally and conveniently right. So um, the U.S. government imposed a trade embargo on Sudan in 1997, froze all of their assets in the United States, cutting off exports and imports to Sudan. And Mm -hmm. uh, still, though, because Sudan was able to get support from China and Russia, the oil industry boomed there during the 80s, 90s. In 2010, Sudan was considered the 17th fastest-growing economy in the world, But then in 2011, when South Sudan, with the support of the Obama administration, seceded, contained 75% of the oil fields, Northern Sudan uh, ended a phase of stagflation, GDP growth slowed, and inflation was like 21%, 22% 
as of 2015. Their GDP Mm. fell from 123 US billion in 2017 to 40 US billion in 2018. Wow. That's enormous, right? In one year, their economy just, yeah, flatlined. Yeah. Uh, Not flatlined. Jesus. Just crashed. Um, with the yeah. result of yeah. South Sudan seceding with, again, the support of the US. Oil was Sudan's main export. Production had inc- increased dramatically during the 2000s. Right. And then, boom, it's all gone. The New York Times, you know, I've been saying Obama, Obama, et cetera. I'm going to quote from the New York, Time, mm-hmm. New York Times here. At the time, 2011, right. it said, South Sudan is in many ways an American creation carved out of war-torn Sudan in a referendum largely orchestrated by the United States, its fragile institutions nurtured with billions of dollars in American aid. Can you hear the podcast that my wife's playing loudly outside my door? I hear something. Hold on. Um, uh, More from the New York Times on this. The U.S. government's longstanding sanctions against Sudan were officially removed from applicability to newly independent South Sudan in December 2011. And senior mm-hmm. officials participated in a high-level international engagement conference in Washington, D.C. to help connect foreign investors with South Sudanese private sector representatives. Unlike most We're African so countries, South Sudan has a powerful constituency in Washington, not only in the White House, but also in Capitol Hill, where lawmakers have championed its Christian population against persecution by the Muslim North. Oh, you take a little racism, you mix it with oil, and then you mix in some Christian. I love it. Love it, Jerry. By Jesus. the way, um, the whole yeah. South Sudanese thing turned into a bloody civil war as well. When it, As soon as it got independence, it turned into a mm-hmm. huge civil war for control. 400,000 people dead out of a population of about 12 million people, which is a huge Jeez. chunk of people. But, yeah. um, you know, the U.S. didn't get involved. It's all good. As long as, uh, yeah. you know, we're, they're, they're on our keep, side, it's all good. Keep it flowing. Keep Their economy flowing. boomed yeah. um, sort of about just, you know, growing at about 9% a year. Um, yeah. But, again, the U.S. hasn't been able to get its foot in the door, unfortunately, for U.S. oil interests. Heavy um, steps. China. Give us time. And Malaysia actually seem Uh to own most of it. Um, So there's this Mm. company called Nile Pet, Nile Petroleum Operating Company. China owns a 40% share in that. Um, And uh, like, so South Sudan gets most of its revenue from oil. Three joint venture companies operating there, Dar Petroleum Operating Company, which is a partnership between Nile Pet, China National Petroleum Corporation, Petronas, which is Malaysian, owned by the Malaysian royal family, Sinopec, mm-hmm. also Chinese, and Tri-Ocean Energy, which is Egyptian. Um, there's mm. a couple of others. ONGC Videsh is an Indian company, has some big oil interests there. But it's mostly you know, India, China, and Malaysia. Um, right now, Patronus. By the way, I, uh, uh, people may have seen or heard of Patronus's issues um, over the years. In 2010, the European Coalition on Oil in Sudan published the report "Unpaid Debt: 
They called upon the governments of Sweden, Austria and Malaysia to look into allegations that Petronas, London Petroleum and OMV may have been complicit Mm -hmm. in the commission of war crimes and crimes against humanity while operating in South Sudan, which was actually part of just Sudan at the time, during the period of 1997 to 2003. The reported crimes include indiscriminate attacks and intentional targeting of civilians, burning of shelters, pillage, destruction of objects necessary for survival, unlawful killing of civilians, rape of women, abduction of children, torture, and forced displacement. When the consortium that Petronas took part in operated in Block 5A, South Sudan, approximately 12,000 people died and 160,000 were violently displaced from their land and homes, many forever. Satellite pictures taken between 1994 and 2003 show that the activities of Petronas in Sudan coincided with a spectacular drop in agricultural land use in its concession area. Um, But you don't hear about that. You know, just the role of the oil companies in oppressing civilians, creating the, you know, economic conditions for civil war there, again, doesn't get covered. So to wrap this bitch up after nearly two hours of giving you my quick (laughs) overview of Sudan, ladies and gentlemen, this looks to me like another proxy war. When you break right. down all of the details that have gone on over the last couple of decades, um, there's a proxy war going on in Sudan for control of the region uh, between mm-hmm. primarily, I'd say, China, Russia, um, and the United States, with probably Malaysia uh, playing a role and India playing a role, Britain and France playing various roles at a, at a lower level. Um, right. But... The involvement of these various parties in the current situation is still murky. We probably mm-hmm. won't know for a long time who backed who. We may never know. But right. here's a tip. When it's all played out, when the dust settles, see mm-hmm. how quickly the various foreign powers either condemn or support the victorious right. party. That tells you a lot. There's your- Right. Yeah, and then you got qui bono, but yeah, whoever acknowledges, I I officially recognize you, Hamati, uh, you know, whatever. So yeah, that that's a pretty good tell. And the qui bono. So once the dust settles, right? Which companies yeah. from which countries announce major deals in Sudan? Yes. Reconstruction deals, financing deals, oil, right. mineral exploration, refining deals. That'll mm-hmm. tell us a lot about. You know, yes. who picked which guys and who were promised right. things after the war in yeah. return for support during the war. Also, we hope well, investigative yeah. journalists yeah. like Seymour Hirsch, Long May He Live, um, Matt Taibbi, yes. Glenn Greenwald, etc., uh, Julian Report Assange, away. if he ever gets out of jail, yes. um, leakers, right. release stuff. That will be yeah. probably mostly hidden from the mainstream media, um, to, as much as possible, but we'll keep an eye out yeah. for that kind of stuff. And yeah. um, if we keep this show going, report back on it. Yeah. And, and if I could, um, by the time the war is over with and uh, the various countries get whatever they're going to get out of this, let's not forget that hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of Sudanese are now dead or they've lost their home or they've lost loved ones or they've lost everything that they've ever worked for. So there's always the human factor, but that's not 
something I can put in my gas tank. But they're black and Arabs, right? And is Islamic, so they don't I got really, you. yeah, you know, they don't really factor yeah. into the equation as much. Thank here. you for for straightening me out on that. One.